0: Every day in America, 22 million people stand by for Paul Harvey. His unique blend of news and views have made him one of the most listened to personalities in radio history. And he's best known for his segment, The Rest of the Story. Each day, Paul Harvey recounts a set of circumstances. And then he takes a station break and says that when he returns, he'll tell us the rest of the story. It's usually a strange conclusion with a peculiar twist. Paul Harvey's true stories condition us to expect the unexpected. Well, here in Second Samuel, we begin with Samuel's version, or the prophet's version, of the rest of the story. First Samuel chapter 31 ends with us thinking that we've gotten the full scoop on the death of Israel's King Saul, on the Mount of Gilboa. In the heat of battle, he was hit with an arrow. Saul knew that if he was captured alive, his enemies would treat him to some cruel and inhumane treatment. That's why Saul tried to talk his armor bearer into killing him. But when the guy refused, Saul then took his own sword, fell on his sword, an apparent suicide. 2 Samuel chapter 1, though, tells us nothing that contradicts the account of Saul's demise in the last chapter of 1 Samuel, Samuel, but it does provide us the rest of the story. David now is still in Ziklag, his Philistine refuge, when news arrives that Saul is dead. A man shows up. He comes straight from the front lines. And we're told in verse 2 of chapter 1, Behold, it happened that a man came from David's camp with his clothes torn and dust on his head. And so it was, when he came to David, that he fell to the ground and prostrated himself. Now his torn clothes and the dirt on his head were signs of severe grief, great agony. David knew by his appearance that a calamity had occurred. Which the torn clothes reminds me of a story. There once was a Greek professor at a seminary who did business with a Greek tailor. The two men shared a love for Greek philosophy. And they were always reading and discussing the Greek classics. One day, the professor tore his suit. And he brought it into the tailor to be repaired. And the tailor look, looked at the tear and he said, Euripides? And the professor said, Yes, Eumenides? Eumenides? Euripides, Eumenides, it's a Greek joke. Well, the man goes on here to tell David that the Philistines have routed Israel. And Saul and Jonathan are dead. And David asks him in verse 5, how do you know? And in verse 6, the man provides us the rest of the story. As I happened by chance to be on Mount Geboa, there was Saul leaning on his spear. And indeed the chariots and horsemen followed hard after him. Now when he looked behind him, he saw me and he called to me. And I answered, Here I am. And he said to me, Who are you? And so I answered him, I am an Amalekite. And he said to me again, Please stand over me and kill me, for anguish has come upon me, but my life still remains in me. And so I stood over him and killed him. Because I was sure that he could not live after he had fallen. And I took the crown that was on his head and the bracelet that was on his arm, and have brought them here to my Lord. Now when you piece this man's account together with first Samuel thirty one, here's what must have happened. Saul took the hit from the arrow. He fell on his sword trying to commit suicide, but the wound didn't immediately kill him. He's leaning on his spear. The sword sticking through his midsection, an arrow in his thigh. Saul has this piercing stomachache. And the Amalekite knows that a whole barrel of Pepto-Bismol is not going to help this man. Saul is pleading that this man will finish the job. Saul would rather die than spend the rest of the little life he had left being tortured by the Philistines. And so the Amalekite thinks it's a merciful thing to strike down the king of Israel. And that's what he does. But in verse 11, we're told David took hold of his own clothes and tore them. And so did all the men who were with him. David does a little Euripides. Now, this is not the reaction you would expect from David. You'd think that he would be rejoicing in the death of his enemy. Look at all this meant to David. First of all, it meant that he could finally go home. He would no longer have this madman chasing him. It meant that the throne that God had appointed for him to occupy was now vacant for him to assume. His life was no longer be in constant peril. A lot of benefits had now come to David. But notice, rather than jump for joy, David mourns. He rips his clothes. He expresses grief. And here's an important example for us. Jesus, David, takes no joy in another man's sorrow. David takes no joy in another man's sorrow. And neither should we. I've heard it said, never kick a man when he's down. Or in this case, even dead. You never know when you might end up in the very same circumstances. Now I'm sure much of David's mourning over the loss of Saul and his sons had to do with the loss of his buddy Jonathan. But he also expresses genuine sorrow over the loss of Saul. You see, he respected Saul's position while he lived. Now he will respect his position even after he is dead. Understand, again, David was an internally motivated person. He and Saul were the antithesis to each other. Saul's inner disposition was always tied to his outer circumstances. Always basing his decisions on the opinions of others. David, though, lived his life and wired his emotions to the will of God. And even though David even though Saul's death would benefit him personally, David wasn't thinking selfishly. He saw the defeated soldiers, he saw the cadaver of the God-anointed king on the Philistine wall, and it upset him, it grieved him, it all brought shame on the name of God. And David mourned because he was more concerned for God's glory than his own welfare. May we all have a heart like David. For at least a decade now, David has been on the run from Saul. On two occasions, it was within his power to kill his enemy. But Saul had been chosen by the Lord, and David had chosen to honor God's anointed. Now he doesn't understand why this Amalekite didn't have the same attitude. Why did he think he had the right to kill Saul when David had the opportunity and didn't exercise, knew that he didn't have the right? David is really in a tough position here. His top priority is to protect the honor of the king. And this will be vital to David's own future. And every king thereafter, if David lets this man live, It'll seem as if David has put his stamp of approval on Saul's murder his critics might even accuse him of organizing a coup d'etat David knows that any action against the king needs to be punished and so he orders this Amalekite executed for not honoring the king of Israel One side note it's interesting that Saul was murdered by who by an Amalekite And you remember, we go back to chapter 15 of 1 Samuel. Who was it that Saul refused to execute? It was the Amalekites. And that's why Saul was rejected by God as king of Israel. When he defeated the Amalekites, he didn't wipe them out as God had told him. And now it's an Amalekite that kills him. How ironic. It just goes to show that obedience to God not only yields short-term good, But it has benefits that don't become apparent until years thereafter. In verses 19 through 27, David writes a psalm that he calls the song of the bow. One commentator writes of this song, It stands out as the genuine outpouring of a noble heart, a heart too great to harbor one selfish thought in this dark hour of his country's humiliation. David harbors no selfish thoughts. He's absorbed with the nation's loss, not his own personal gain. Here are a few of the highlights of this song. He says, How the mighty have fallen. Tell it not in Gath. Proclaim it not in the streets of Ashkelon, lest the daughters of the Philistines rejoice. In other words, don't give God's enemies any reason to rejoice. For the shield of the mighty is cast away there, the shield of Saul, not anointed with oil. Ancient warriors would oil their shields with the olive oil so that if an arrow hit the shield at an angled trajectory, it would glance off the slick surface. Saul's shield, though, had no oil, and the arrow struck him. And in a spiritual sense, Saul's kingdom was no longer anointed with oil. The Holy Spirit had departed from him, and this, too, made him extremely vulnerable. It says the bow of Jonathan did not turn back and the sword of Saul did not return empty. Both men were brave to the end, in other words. In verse 24, David tells the women of Israel to weep for Saul. In verse 26, he mourns for Jonathan in his death. He says, I am distressed for you, my brother Jonathan. You have been very pleasant to me. Your love to me was wonderful, surpassing the love of women. Jonathan had been a closer friend to David than his own wives. Verse 27 wraps it up. How the mighty have fallen. Now you remember back in 1 Samuel 15 when God rejected Saul. You remember after the pronouncement of that rejection, Saul reached out to grab Samuel. And when he did, he tore his robe. And at that point, the Lord told Samuel that he would rip away the kingdom from Saul. In essence, God looked at Saul and said, Euripides. And then he turned to David and he said, here, Eumenides. And it becomes David's job to now mend and heal a fractured kingdom. And that's what David begins to do in chapter 2. The door seems open for him to return to his home in the land of Israel. But first he consults the Lord. And that's always important. Just because a door seems open, don't necessarily think that you should walk through it. First, ask the Lord. Proverbs 16, verse 25 reminds us, There is a way that seems right to a man. It looks good, but its end is the way of death. Not everything that looks good is of God. Self-deception is always a possibility, and we need to guard against it. And that's why David prays. And in verse 1, He says, Shall I go up to any of the cities of Judah? And the Lord answers him, Go up. Then he asks which city, and the Lord says, To Hebron. Notice, though, the brevity of the Lord's commands. (laughs) God charts the course of David's future. He's making an important step, and all he has to go on is four words that the Lord says to him. Go up to Hebron. When the Lord speaks to you, don't always expect a detailed explanation. Long, flowery, extended speeches are not the Lord's forte. When the Lord speaks so often, He gets right to the point. Go up to Hebron. David comes home to Hebron. And immediately he senses a rift between the southern tribe of Judah and the northern tribes of Israel. And in an expression of goodwill, he sends a thank you to Jabesh Gilead. This was the northern city that rescued the body of Saul from the Philistine humiliation. Gave it a decent burial. But this doesn't stop the northern kingdoms from rallying around Saul's younger son, Ishbosheth. They make him king over the northern tribes. David becomes king over Judah, and for the next two years, a civil war rages there in Israel. And an incident occurs that sort of illustrates the conflict that was going on along the border during those two years. Ishboshes, general Abner and David's general Joab, they meet with their armies at the Pool of Gibeon. Apparently, the encounter started out peaceful. Both armies were on simple patrol, but they had gotten pretty bored. And that's why Abner suggests a little friendly competition. How about some entertainment for the rest of the troops? And so two dozen soldiers, they square off for a friendly little joust. But hey, tempers flare. And the competitors get carried away. Someone draws blood. And in the end, all two dozen men lie dead in the field. And it brings about a bench-clearing brawl. Both armies jump into the fray. And that's when Azahil, Joab's brother, sees Abner slipping away, trying to escape. Now we're told in verse 18... Azaheel was as fleet of foot as a wild gazelle. This was a Hebrew Michael Johnson. A world-class sprinter. Joab's brother Azaheel takes out after Abner. And the closer he gets, the more Abner begins to warn him to back off. But Azaheel is addicted to the chase. He won't stop. That is until Abner Thrusts backwards the blunt end of his spear. And Azahil puts on the brakes, but he can't stop. And the end of the spear penetrates Azahil's midsection with such impact and such force that it goes right through him and sticks out his back. The whole story is a pointed reminder that there are some battles in life that are just not worth fighting. Rather than push on, Sometimes the best strategy is to back off. If you're fixated on an ungodly goal, give it up while you still can. Certainly there are causes worth even dying for. There are causes that deserve sacrificial effort. But there are other campaigns, other chases that are better off abandoned. Some of us have spent our entire lives chasing an Abner. We've been in pursuit since college. We've been relentless, pushing, driving toward a dream. We've thrown caution to the wind as Azahil did. We're addicted to the adrenaline. The chase has become an ego trip. We've got to achieve that goal. But what if you catch your Abner? (laughs) What will you do with him? That's what Azahil never considered. You know, it's amazing how dreams can become nightmares if those dreams are not of God. Guys, we need to evaluate our motive. If we're in a chase, let's make sure that the chase is worth it, that it's worth the sacrifice. Let's make sure that we're not in a chase that we'll later regret once we've achieved it. After the death of Azahil, Abner and Joab come to their senses. And they call off the fight, all this needless bloodshed. The casualty count numbers 20 of David's men, but it numbers 360 men of the king Ishbosheth. And chapter 3, verse 1 sort of summarizes the two years that the kingdom is divided. Now there was a long war between the house of Saul and the house of David, but David grew stronger and stronger. And the house of Saul grew weaker and weaker. Second Samuel chapter two, verse 32 tells us that Joab buried his brother Azahil, but he didn't forget who murdered him. And a lethal bitterness began to brew within the heart of Joab toward Abner. Chapter three tells us of the power struggle that occurs in Mahanaim or in the court of Saul's son Ishbosheth. Apparently, he was a weak leader. And his general Abner, his influence began to grow stronger and stronger. Finally, Ishbosheth confronts Abner. But the general vows to jump sides. He says, hey, I'll go and fight for David. I'll fulfill God's promise and help turn the kingdom over to David. David embraces Abner. And he sees in his change of heart a way to sort of unify the nation. And so he hosts a reception for Abner there in Hebron. Joab, though, is out on patrol. And when he comes back, he hears of what's happened. David saw it as an opportunity to unite the nation. Joab saw it as an opportunity to get revenge. And he calls for Abner to return, wanting to greet him. But when he does, he has a dagger up his sleeve. And as they go to shake hands, I would imagine, he pulls out that dagger and he stabs Abner right in the stomach. David mourns the death of Abner. But here's an interesting point. David does nothing to really punish Joab. Yes, you'll read that he utters a curse over him, but that's about all that David does is just muster words. And for the first time, we see a dangerous tendency in David that will haunt him for years to come. He fails to discipline the people around him. He should have punished Joab, but he did it. Later, he will need to punish his sons, but he doesn't. In verse 31, we're told that David followed Abner's casket to his grave, which reminds me of the casket that slipped out of the hands of the pallbearers and started sliding down the grassy hill. It jumped the curb, went across the street, and crashed into the big plate glass window of the town's pharmacy. The funeral director, of course, was chasing after the casket. And when he ran into the store, after it stopped, right there in the front of the store, the pharmacist came out and the funeral director sort of cleared his throat, <clears> throat> and he said, Hey, I just got to tell you, thanks for stopping this coffin. <clears throat> well, I'm just... Dying tonight. I'm dying. Every joke I tell is dying tonight. And David mourned the loss of Abner just as you're mourning that joke. In chapter 4, two of Abner's captains realize that without their general, they're no match for David's army. And so they plot a coup against Ishbosheth. Rechab and Bana find the king on his bed and they stab him in the stomach. And they chop off his head to boot and they bring it to David. And it seems that this is David's opportunity now to really get ahead. But Give me a break. (laughs) But you remember David's reaction to the Amalekite. Likewise here. He rebukes Rechab and Bana for usurping the authority of a king, and he executes them both. David, you see, will punish his enemies, but he just won't discipline discipline his friends and family. That's what we'll find about David. <laughs> hey, more heads roll in tonight's chapters than bowling balls on Friday night, trust me. <laughs> and there are very few spares. Most of them are strikes. Few of them are gutters. But anyway. With the death of Ishbosheth, all Israel comes to David at Hebron. And in chapter five, all the tribes acknowledge God's appointment of David and pledge their allegiance. And for the third time now, David is anointed king. Samuel anointed him, remember, while he was still a boy. Judah anointed him. The tribe of Judah anointed him after the death of Saul. And now all Israel comes together at Hebron to anoint David king. It seems that David received a new anointing each time his sphere of influence expanded. I believe that we too need multiple anointings of the Holy Spirit. The oil of the Spirit needs to be poured out upon us afresh each time God enlarges our witness, increases our responsibility in God's kingdom. We need these continual outpourings of the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, a new king needs a new capital. Besides, Hebron is too far south to really serve as a capital for this united kingdom. And so David captures Jerusalem, the city of the Jebusites. Previously, the Jebusites considered their city to be unconquerable since it's set on a hill called Zion. They boasted that even the blind... And the lame could defend it because of its natural fortifications. But you see, David was smart. The city drew its water from outside of its walls. And so he sends a man up the water shaft. And First Chronicles 11 verse 6 tells us that the daring dude was none other than Joab, the general. And once inside, he was able to sneak over, unlock the gates, and let David's men into the city. And that's how he conquered Jerusalem. David's conquest, after his conquest, Jerusalem receives a new name. And for many years to come, it's referred to, even today, as the city of David. Now, once David solidifies his control of the kingdom, Hiram, the king of Tyre, wants to make peace. And he sends enough cedar wood to build David an elaborate palace. And we're told in chapter 5, verse 12, So David knew that the Lord had established him as king over Israel and that he had exalted his kingdom for the sake of his people Israel. David's years in the wilderness on the run from Saul had taught him that his sudden rise to power was not of his own doings, but it was the work of the Lord. The Lord had raised him up for the sake of his people Israel. Now, while in Jerusalem, we're told that David added more wives and concubines to his royal harem, and this probably was the result of peace treaties that he signed with neighboring nations. In those days, a treaty would be signed, and in order to solidify it, a daughter would be given to the king, and the treaty was solidified by a marriage, the idea being that it's much more difficult to attack your in-laws. I imagine that's true depending on your in-laws. Chapter 6 records a bizarre event. The last time, you remember, the Ark of the Covenant was mishandled. It cost the Philistines a terrible, torturous plague. You remember what it was? It was an outbreak of hemorrhoids. And the Ark became a Philistine hot potato. Everywhere it went, the people developed these hemorrhoids. Which proves conclusively that disobedience to God is indeed a pain in the caboose. Now when the Philistines finally sent the ark home, it was also mishandled by the Israelites. You remember the men of Beth Shemesh? They let their curiosity get the best of them. And they opened the ark. You remember what was in the ark? The two tablets that Moses brought down from Mount Sinai. The jar of manna and the rod of Aaron that had budded. And they wanted to see these three elements. And so they opened the ark. But according to the law of God, only the priests were allowed to handle the ark. And the violators at Beshemus were struck dead. A judgment from God. Which is what happens here. A mishandling of the ark again proves deadly. This time David wants to bring the ark up from Kiraz to Jerusalem. His motive is cool. It's good. But David fails to follow the instructions that God has laid out in the law of Moses. Which brings up a point. When it comes to ministry, both motive and method are important to God. I've seen people who did stupid things in the name of God and excused it by appealing to their motive. Oh yes, we might have misrepresented God, but we meant well. Our hearts were in the right place, but where was your head? I'm glad your motive is pure, but make sure your methods reflect the purity of your motive. Both motive and method matter to God. The law said that the ark was to be transported on poles carried by the priests. But instead, David puts it on an ox-drawn cart driven by two men. Ahio and Uzzah. And while en route, the oxen pulling the cart stumble. And Uzzah reaches out his hand to steady the ark. Apparently he feared that it was about to slide off the cart. But Uzzah was the loser. Because we're told in verse 7, Then the anger of the Lord was aroused against Uzzah and god struck him there for his error and he died there by the ark of god now if you go back to 1 samuel chapter 5 you'll discover where david gets this idea to move the ark on a cart this was how the philistines had transported the ark when they brought it back from Philist- philistia back to israel they had brought it on a cart But this was not the procedure found in the law of Moses. You see, the cart was the world's way of doing it, not God's way. And the church always gets in trouble. And a spiritual death always follows when the church begins to mimic the methods and the ways of the world. God's wisdom and good business practice at times will parallel But never assume that just because a tactic works in business, it should be employed in the church. It's just as important that our methods are guided by God as our motives. Initially, David blames God for this outbreak against Uzzah. But over the next few weeks, his attitude begins to shift. He realizes that he's the one to blame, not God. That he had become flippant. He had become negligent in his worship of God. He was not handling the things of God with the seriousness that they deserve. Has that become a problem for you? Have you become too flippant with the things of God, too nonchalant with holy things? David was guilty of an irreverence. You remember the old saying, familiarity breeds contempt. And over time, a nonchalance can creep into our worship It can cause us to treat God tritely. And when we lose our sense of reverence, God will not hesitate to do what's needed to recapture our attention. That's what He does here when He strikes down Uzzah. In chapter 6, verse 13, David tries again to bring the ark up to Jerusalem. This time, though, he has researched his methods. He has sifted his motive. And this time he brings the ark up by the priest as he should have in the first place, bearing the ark on poles. And just to be safe, we're told that every six paces they stop and they offer sacrifices to the Lord. He's taking every precaution this time. In verses 14 and 15 we're told, Then David danced before the Lord with all his might, and David was wearing a linen ephod. So David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of the trumpet. David really got into the praise and the worship of God. He got caught up in the emotion. He loved the Lord. And he didn't care if anyone knew it. He loved the Lord and he desired to see God praised. And as the ark came up to Jerusalem, David was there before the ark, just praising God with all his might, dancing, literally, whirling and twirling before the Lord. Michael, though, his wife, was watching him from the window. Now, you remember Michael. She was the daughter of Saul, whose dowry price was 100 Philistine foreskins. You remember that, and how David killed those Philistines? We're really not sure. Perhaps it was by surprise. You know, he caught them with their pants down. You know? <laughs> I got to cut this off right now. <laughs> right, I'm sorry. Michael, though, was more Saul's daughter. Than you would dream. She, she was just like her father in the wrong ways. She was spoiled. She too was an externally motivated person concerned only about the opinions of others and governed by the popularity polls. It's been said don't marry a girl whose daddy calls her princess if you don't want to have to treat her like one. Michael was spoiled. And just like her dead, she thought only of herself and her image. And her whole approach to life was to look regal, look royal, look dignified. David, though, was a man after God's own heart. Michael and Saul, they were just people playing the part. And when it came to worship, David loved the Lord. And he was right in step with the Lord. When it came to worship, Michael didn't have a clue. And that's why she was so upset with her husband. David, you have acted so humble, so unkingly, so undignified. And she had despised his uninhibitedness. And when David got home, she greets him in verse 20. And you've got to read it with as much sarcasm as you can muster. She says, how glorious was the king of Israel today uncovering himself today in the eyes of the maids of his servants as one of the base fellows shamelessly uncovers himself. In other words, how shameful. You call yourself a king and you're out like some wild man dancing around in his BBDs? You see, David had gotten caught up in his love for the Lord. He had become oblivious to what other people thought, but not Michael. She was fixated on maintaining that proper image. David cared about pleasing God. Michael, the consummate politician's daughter, only cared about the CNN polls. You know, it's sad when a person seeks to deepen their experience with God, seeks to expand their worship of God without the support of their spouse. Like a bird with a broken wing trying to get airborne. It's so much easier with the help of that other wing. Wife, be careful that you don't become like Michael and become a wedge between your husband and God. Husband, don't you become a hindrance in your wife's attempts to draw near to God. When a wife or husband becomes a wedge, look what happens. Verse 23, Therefore, Michael, the daughter of Saul, had no children to the day of her death. Because of her disdain for David's love of God, Michael was sentenced to a lifetime of barrenness. And guys, you'll experience a spiritual barrenness, an emotional barrenness, if you resist your spouse's efforts to worship God and to love God. And if you stop trying to become a worshiper yourself, together, you and your spouse. Seek the Lord. Worship Him together with all your heart and you both will be fruitful. In chapter 7, verse 2, David shows the kind of concern typical for David. As usual, he's thinking of the Lord, not himself. He's in his palace, looking out the window at the tent that holds the ark of God. And he's pondering, why do I have this nice Beautiful new palace. And the ark of God sits in a tent. This is not right. It's the ark of God that should have the permanent home. Not me. Isn't that typical David? Thinking of God's glory not His own. And David desires to build a house or a temple for the Lord. And he seeks the prophet Nathan for permission to begin construction. The Lord though speaks to Nathan and he turns the tables. No, no. David will not build God a house, but God will build a house for David. He will establish a dynasty of kings that will come from the loins of David. David will have a house. God predicts in verses 12-14 through that David's seed, his son, will sit on the throne and he will be the one to build a temple for God. And of course, the immediate reference was to Solomon who built the temple there in Jerusalem. And in verse 14, we're told that God also promises to discipline the house of David when needed. And for the next 500 years, that's exactly what God does, disciplines those Davidic kings. But verse 16 goes beyond the scope of Solomon. It says, and your house and your kingdom shall be established forever before you. Your throne shall be established for how long? Forever. The Davidic dynasty ended in 586 B.C. when the Babylonians sacked Jerusalem. When King Zedekiah was taken prisoner to Babylon. But the rabbis saw in this prophecy a future king of the lineage of David who would reign and rule forever and ever. They called this future king, this forever ruler, this eternal king. They called him by the name the Anointed One. And the Hebrew translation of that phrase is Mashiach or Messiah. And the Greek translation is actually Christ. And whenever we call Jesus Christ, we're expressing our belief that He is the heir to all of the promises that God made to David here in Second Samuel chapter 7. And this is why the genealogies in Matthew and Luke become so important because they trace Jesus' lineage back to David and they demonstrate how He qualifies as the Davidic heir. We've discussed several other covenants now in our journey through the Scriptures. These covenants provide terms by which God forms a relationship with His people. God made a covenant with Adam and then Noah, then Abraham, then Moses, now David, later with Jeremiah and Ezekiel. The Davidic covenant is important because it's really the culmination of all other covenants for everything else that God does and establishes will end up under the rule of our eternal King, Jesus Christ. Now, David wanted to build God a house. Instead, though, God has promised to build David a house or a dynasty. And I love David's reaction to God's blessing in verse 18. He sits down and he says to God, Why am I, O Lord God? Or who am I, O Lord God? And what is my house that you have brought me this far? You ever thought that? Who am I, Lord, that you've blessed so abundantly? Who am I, Lord, that you've brought so far? And yet this was a small thing in your sight, O Lord God. And you have also spoken of your servant's house for a great while to come. Is this the manner of man, old Lord God? In other words, God, no one else loves like this. This isn't the manner of man. This isn't how man loves. I try to do you a favor and instead you bless me forever. I just want to do you a small thing. But you have said things about me that will last through the eons of time. He says in verse 20, Now what more can David say to you? David has become speechless. He's blown away. And remember, this is Israel's psalmist. This is the great wordsmith, the great lyricist. Suddenly, though, he's made speechless by the grace of God. And I have found that to be a common reaction to the grace of God. So many times I just end up speechless. God has been so good to me. He has blessed me in ways I could never deserve. And it just takes the words away. It's amazing. His wonderful grace toward us. In the rest of chapter 7, David recounts God's mercies on Israel. And he sings a song of praise and it crescendos in verse 26. Let your name be magnified forever. In Second Samuel chapter 8, David's triumphs are enumerated. He defeats the Philistines to the west, Moab and Edom to the south, the Ammonites to the east, the Syrians to the north. His northern campaign takes him even as far as the Euphrates River. Verse 6 and 14 of the chapter sum up David's military success. The Lord preserved David wherever he went. David ruled over a vast kingdom and his conquests made him rich. During the reigns of David and Solomon, Israel was really a world superpower during that time. Verses 15 through 18 list David's cabinet. His general was Joab. Jehoshaphat was his recorder or literally his rememberer. In other words, he was the official state historian. Zadok and Ahimelech shared responsibilities as high priest. Zariah was the scribe or the secretary of state, and Benaiah was head of the Cherethites and Pelethites who made up David's secret service. His sons represented David among the people. In chapter 9, David keeps his word to Jonathan. In 1 Samuel 20, you remember when David left Saul's court for good, he promised Jonathan that he would be kind to his descendants. And now that he's established in his rule, he says to his men, Hey, Are there any of Jonathan's descendants out there so that I can fulfill my promise? And they find one. His name is Mephibosheth. And in chapter 4, verse 4, we're told of Mephibosheth's situation. You have to go back a few chapters. That he was five years old when the news about Saul and Jonathan came from Jezreel. And his nurse took him up and fled, and it happened, as she made haste to flee, that he fell and became lame. His name was Mephibosheth. A nasty fall as a child had turned Mephibosheth into a person with crippled feet. He was unable to walk. And here David calls for Mephibosheth and he tells him in chapter 9, verses 7 and 8, he says, Do not fear, for I will surely show you kindness for Jonathan your father's sake and will restore to you all the land of Saul your grandfather and you shall eat bread at my table continually. And in verse 11, David promises to treat Mephibosheth even like one of his own sons. I know another Mephibosheth. And He's you. You and I were lame spiritually. We too experienced a fall. When the first man, Adam, sinned, we sinned with him. We all fell from God's ideal. We all sinned. And we were cut off from God's blessings and His power. And like Mephibosheth, We have received special treatment on account of someone else. God has poured out His blessings upon us by virtue of His Son Jesus Christ and our faith in Him. And God now invites us, like David did Mephibosheth, to His table to eat from His provision and His portion. God even promises to treat us now like His own Son Jesus Christ. This is what it means to be in Christ. Mephibosheth was adopted into David's family just as we've been adopted into the family of God. And I love Mephibosheth's reaction to all of this benevolence, all of this grace poured out upon him by David. He says, Then he bowed himself and said, What is your servant that you should look upon such a dead dog as I? You get the impression he feels unworthy? This is how you and I should feel. In light of the glorious riches that God has poured upon us through His grace. When you understand God's grace, when you understand all that the Son of David has done for us, only dead dead dog humility will do. It's the only response. We are so unworthy, and yet God is so gracious. David was quite a guy, he even showed kindness to his enemies. We learn in the next chapter that when the king of Ammon died, he sent envoys eastward to extend his condolences to the king's son. Hanun took over there in Ammon, but Hanun fell victim to some bad advice. His advisors tell him that David's sympathies aren't really genuine. That these envoys, they're really spies. And Hanun, David really just wants to spy out your land and take over and fight against you. And Hanun makes a serious mistake. Rather than thanking David's diplomats, he disgraces them. We're told in chapter 10, verse 4, Hanun took David's servants, shaved off half of their beards, cut off their garments in the middle at their buttocks, and sent them away. He disgraced them. We're not told this, but it's my hunch that all of this took place at the feast of the new moon. But I don't don't really know that for sure. It's just kind of a theory, a hunch. David didn't take too kindly to Hanun's insult. And a battle ensues. And even though Hanun hires 33,000 Syrian mercenaries, he's still no match for Israel. And in verse 9, we're told that the enemy attacks Israel from the rear. He tries to catch him from behind. But Joab and Abishai outflank him. And another nation bites the dust. And David wins another victory. And that seems to be the case with David at this point. Victory after victory after victory. And that's where we leave him until next week, a triumphant king. But you know what? There's trouble ahead. There's dark clouds on the horizon. And we find out that the only person that David couldn't beat, his only enemy that triumphed over him was himself. And sometimes we can be our own worst enemies. Father, thank you for your love and your grace toward us. Thank you, Lord, that you have treated us like David treated Mephibosheth. You have poured out upon us grace and mercy, even when we didn't deserve it. You have taken people that are spiritually lame and eternally lost. You have forgiven us. You have strengthened our feet and you have enabled us to walk. And we can now walk in a way pleasing to You, Lord. We can be a witness for You in this needy world. And You've even invited us to Your table, Lord, to eat from Your provision and to know You personally. And You treat us now, Lord, as Your own children. And we are so grateful. We are so thankful. Though we feel like a dead dog sometimes, we thank You, Lord, that Your grace is not bestowed upon our worthiness, but it's love we can't deserve. But we receive it. We thank You for it. And we want to live in it, Lord, every day. Letting it fill us and transform us and fuel us and fire us. Fill us, Lord, tonight afresh with a new anointing of Your Spirit. Pour out Your power upon us, Lord. And help us, Lord, be, to be the people You desire us to be. We love You, Lord. We pray all these things in Jesus' wonderful name. And everyone said, let's all stand.